you know, it's really important and that even in the midst of the coronavirus health crisis and other trials which has brought turmoil, affliction, and has really turned our lives upside down for the most part in 2020, to remember one absolute truth that will help bring normalcy, and we're also for normalcy, right, normalcy for the rest of 2020 and also in future years. For believers, as we heard last week in Luke chapter 2, by God's grace, we have been given the greatest gift, a Savior who can forgive sins. John MacArthur says the most distinctive message of Christianity is the reality that sin can be forgiven. We thank God for that. That is the heart and lifeblood of the gospel, that men can be freed from sin and its consequences. The Christian faith has many truths, values, and virtues. Each of us has countless applications in the lives of believers. But his supreme overarching good news is that sinful man can be fully cleansed and brought into eternal fellowship with our holy God. Forgiveness, Carter says, of sin is God's greatest gift because it meets man's what? Greatest need. We thank God for that. I invite you to have your Bibles to turn with me to Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. We'll go ahead and read those verses this morning. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Verse 1 says, when he, speaking on Jesus, had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Verse 4 says, being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet in which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus, aware in the spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Verse 9 says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk? Well, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And verse 12 says, and he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed when glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Now from the time of our Savior's birth, if we fast forward, if I say it that way, about 30 years, God sort of parachutes us down into the public ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ in Galilee to show us that Jesus is God Almighty who has the authority to forgive sins. And if you have your outline this morning, we'll take a look at six observations. Six observations showing that Jesus, the Son of God, has the authority to forgive sins. And the first observation showing that Jesus, the Son of God, has authority to forgive sin is when Jesus enters the city of Capernaum. Jesus enters the city of Capernaum. Now, the first point is lengthy, but it provides an introduction that sets the stage of what we will be studying in this narrative about God's forgiveness. And as we look at these verses together, we will also be referring back to the other synoptic Gospels. 
And as you all know, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, recorded the same story, but they contain pertinent information for us. Verse 1 of Mark, chapter 1, verse 1, says, When he had come back to Capernaum. In Jesus' day, Capernaum was a fishing town and was part of an important trade route position on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. The Capernaum was about 20 miles northeast of Nazareth, we heard about last week, where Jesus grew up. It's like traveling northeast from Riverside on the 215 and 10 freeways to get to Redlands. But the question is, why did Jesus come back to Capernaum? Well, the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 4, verse 13 says, And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum. And why does our passage this morning in Mark 2.1 say, When Jesus had come back to Capernaum, and Matthew chapter 4, verse 13 say, He came and settled in Capernaum. Because Jesus had made Capernaum his place of residence, and his headquarters, or his base of operations, after he was violently rejected by the people in his hometown of Nazareth, when he taught and preached in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 30. Let's take a look at for a brief moment. Let's take a look at Luke chapter 4, just briefly. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 20. Luke 4, starting with verse 16. And it says that he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. Verse 17 says, And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And verse 20 says, And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. When you think about Jesus going to Nazareth, and you think about this whole account here, what Jesus was doing, he was quoting a prophetic message, a prophetic, excuse me, passage from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 2, which said that Messiah was going to come to preach and perform many miracles in Israel. Continuing in verse 1, it says that he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. When you think about it, when Jesus said that, if you were part of the audience in the synagogue, you heard Jesus say that, what was Jesus saying? Well, Jesus correctly claimed that he was Israel's long-awaited Messiah would bring healing comfort to those who were oppressed. Well, did Jesus do what the Messiah was prophesied to do? Well, from Matthew's Gospel alone, and you don't have to write these verses down, I'll just kind of give them to you, we can see some of the miracles that Jesus performed. Jesus cleansed the leper in Matthew chapter 8, verse 3. He raised the dead in Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 and 19. And Jesus healed the blind man in Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 to 30. Well, after Jesus said this, look what happened in Luke chapter 4, verses 28 and 29. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which the city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. They wanted to kill Jesus because Jesus claimed that he was Israel's Messiah. Now, for the people of Nazareth's point of view or the perspective, 
That couldn't be true, right? I mean, Messiah couldn't come from the small, poor, disrespected village called Nazareth. And Messiah couldn't be the son of a carpenter named Joseph, could he? Well, actually, yeah, impossible then, but it was actually true, right? Look what happened in verse 30. But passing through their midst, he went his way. They, want, they wanted to grab Jesus and throw him off the cliff, but Jesus did what? He supernaturally passed right through them. So this is why Jesus came back and had settled in his own city called Capernaum. In fact, it was a great place to have his headquarters because Capernaum was the home of Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and Matthew, the tax collector, as Mark chapter 1, verses 16 to 20, and Mark 2, 14 tells us. That was his base of operation. Then if we go back to Mark chapter 2, verse 1, it says, when he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was home. So the question is, where was Jesus before he came back to Capernaum? We're looking just for the account in the Gospel of Mark alone. Jesus was involved in ministry for several days before he came back to Capernaum. For instance, in Mark, we see that Jesus preached the Gospel of God in Mark chapter 1, verse 14. He called his 12 disciples in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 and 20. In Mark chapter 1, verses 23 and 28, Jesus cast out the demon, and the demon knew who Jesus was. The demon called him Jesus what? What did he call him? He called him the Holy One of God. Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law in Mark chapter 1, verses 29 and 31. And Jesus healed all those who were sick and demon-possessed. Does God care about our physical bodies? He sure does, doesn't he? And then after being engaged with all these ministries, what did Jesus do? Well, Mark chapter 1, verse 35 says that Jesus slipped away in the early morning to pray privately to God the Father. Now, what was Jesus probably praying? Well, maybe he was praying at the ministries that he was involved in. Pray that the word of God taught would spread and bear fruit to those who heard it, so again, God would be glorified. I mean, what a great example for us, right? As we're involved in ministry, as we teach and we preach the word of God, as we pass out tracts, as we share the gospel with someone, to pray and ask God that it would bear fruit, that the word of God would go out, so people would be forgiven of their sins. Amen? And that's what we want. Our desire is for people to be forgiven of their sins, and to go to heaven. So as we can see, Jesus was extremely busy ministering, and this is just the, the tip of the iceberg of what Jesus was doing. And again, remember last week, not everything that Jesus did was written in the four Gospels. As we come back, we come back to Mark chapter 2, verse 1, it says, It was heard that he, Jesus, was at home. The commentator Gundry says, Home probably refers to the house, of Peter and Andrew, and refers to Mark chapter 1, verse 29. Can you imagine? Jesus lived with Peter and Andrew. Now, I was thinking about that. Can you imagine for a moment if Jesus, God Almighty, lived in your home, your apartment, or your dorm? Can you imagine? I mean, it would probably be the cleanest place around, right? I mean, we have Bible verses all over the place, right? <laughs> would. 
I think we'd all want to do if Jesus was living with us. Living with us was asking to recite some of the Bible verses, right? Yeah. You know it's all the Bible verses. Well, the news about Jesus being home spread quickly like the news today in a nanosecond when it's on social media, right? Well, look at verse 2. It says, And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room that he met near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. It seems like everywhere Jesus and his disciples went, there was a crowd. Packed house, right? Standing room only. There were so many people in Peter's home that the crowd stood up all the way past the front door. Now here's a little idea of what the homes were like in Israel. One commentator said two-story homes were common in Palestine, and it is likely that the room with the overflow crowd was on the second floor, where most visiting and socializing were done. Such upper rooms were common, and it was in one of these rooms that the Lord ate the Last Supper with his disciples. The roof of the house was often used as a place for relaxation in the cool of the day, and frequently for sleeping on hot nights. The outside stairs were therefore usually built all the way to the roof. Well, many of those in the crowd were curiosity seekers. They were looking for the miracles, not necessarily there to have be given salvation from Jesus Christ, as we'll see in a few moments. But what was Jesus doing with the crowd in Peter's home? Look at verse 2. It says, He was speaking the word to them. The parallel passage in Luke chapter 5, verse 17 says, He was teaching. The word teaching is from the Greek word didasco, meaning that Jesus was teaching the word of God as one having authority, as Mark chapter 1, verse 22 says. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 50 provides an idea of what Jesus was teaching. It says, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You see, Jesus taught and preached the message of repentance from sins and having faith in him alone as the only path to salvation. The only way to go to God is through Jesus Christ. But only was a curious crowd of onlookers a part of Jesus' audience. Who else was in attendance? Look it up on verse 6. It says that some of the scribes were sitting there. So the scribes were there. In fact, Luke chapter 5, verse 17 says that there were some Pharisees, who were the separate ones, and teachers of the law sitting there, the scribes, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and also from Jerusalem to hear Jesus speak. So my thought is, okay, so the spies are in the house now, right? The spies are there to spy on Jesus. But we all know that the Pharisees and scribes are not there to learn from Jesus, right? But they oppose Jesus and desire to catch him in some error in order to indict him. That's what they were waiting for. They wanted to catch him in an error. So as Jesus was teaching the crowd, a group of hopeful men wanted to see Jesus in order to help them in their dire situation. But this leads us to a second observation showing that Jesus, the Son of God, has the authority to forgive sin, is when Jesus meets four determined men. Jesus meets four determined men. Our focus just to verse 3, which says, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. So as Jesus was teaching the word of God, a group of men came towards Jesus, bringing a paralyzed man, who they carried on a pallet. Now, a pallet was a portable, thickly padded quilt of flexible mattress, 
supported by a thin wooden frame in which one reclines or rests on my stretcher. Sometimes we see that, we see videos of people in the Middle East when somebody dies, right? In a funeral, they're carrying so many on a stretcher. It's kind of the idea there. The fact that this paralytic was carried by these four men on a pallet tells us that he was unable to use any of his motor functions or like walking or using his arms. But what do we know about these four desperate individuals? Well, the text doesn't tell us much, but we can infer a couple things. They must have heard and witnessed the excitement of Jesus being in town. These individuals must have heard about Jesus' ministry of preaching the gospel and healing those who were sick. Clearly, this group of men, surely, they, they truly loved their friend and they cared deeply for him, right? And lastly, they, they wanted their paralyzed friend to be healed and to walk again. I mean, what a great example of showing compassion, right, for your friend, right? But only should we show compassion for it, but we should show compassion for everyone, right? Everyone that we meet. Well, what do we know about the paralyzed man? Well, not much. The only information we have about the paralytic is what Jesus calls him in verse 5. In verse 5, Jesus calls him son, which is from the Greek word technomy. He perhaps was a young man. A young man. A young man who was paralyzed. This young man was paralyzed and needed assistance from his dedicated friends. Well, that's a miracle and blessing in of itself that this paralyzed man had friends. And why do I say that? Well, MacArthur says, unlike lepers, those who suffered from paralysis were not shunned by Israelite society, since their condition was not contagious. Nonetheless, because disease and disability in general were assumed to be the immediate consequence of sin, this man was likely stigmatized by many in his community. Though it is true that affliction, pain, and hardship of every sort are a result of the presence of sin in the world, they are not necessarily brought on by some specific sin of the person who is suffering. Some people believe that. Because this is not all sickness is chastening, but all sickness is a graphic demonstration of the destructive power at work in the world because of sin. However, the scribes and the Pharisees thought that any type of sickness was a direct result of a, personal, a person's sinful lifestyle. Well, one way to develop a, a heart of compassion like these four men did for their friend and, and to love and take care of those who are disabled is to read through the Gospels and see how Jesus treated those who were sick, who were blind, who were paralyzed, who were lame. In fact, we have an example of that in Mark chapter 1, verses 40 to 42, just a couple of verses back. Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 40. We'll see how Jesus treated the leper. Verse 40, in verse 40 it says, And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him, and falling on his knees before him, and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Verse 41 says, Move with compassion. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing to be clean or cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. The noun form of the verb compassion there describes the inward parts of the body. It's speaking about your, your bowels. And, and the bowels are figuratively spoken of as the seat of emotions because our emotions can physically affect our bodies, right? But Jesus felt compassion for this leper who was socially rejected. Jesus had deep, sad feelings for him in his inward parts, again, in his stomach or in his bowels. 
And the Jews during Jesus' time didn't think that God was a compassionate God. And maybe you may feel that way today also. I know a lot of people may think that, but that's not true. In fact, Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 says, And the Lord passed by in front of him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, this is God speaking, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Our God is truly a merciful and compassionate God. Amen? Aren't you glad for that? I have experienced much of God's mercy and his compassion in my life. Well, back to Mark chapter 2, look at verse 4. It says, being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. It's kind of a sad testimony when you think about it. That these men could not get through this crowd. It kind of showed their selfishness, didn't it? It kind of showed their, their self-centeredness. Here you have a man who's paralyzed, yet they wouldn't, they wouldn't let the men through to see Jesus. The paralyzed man's friends were probably saying, excuse me, right? excuse me, can we get through? Right? You can imagine what those in the crowd were saying. Wait your turn. Right? Stop trying to move to the front of line. You hear that sometimes. Right? No compassion at all from the crowd. I mean, they should, again, should have let these men through to see Jesus. They missed their golden opportunity to see Jesus heal the paralytic. I mean, that's what they were there for, right? They could have just let him through and let Jesus heal him. But in God's sovereign plan, it wasn't time yet for God to heal the paralytic. A greater miracle was about to occur. So what did the four men do? Well, how determined were they to see Jesus? Well, these men didn't let anything stop them. They didn't get frustrated. They didn't stop you know, their, their desire to have their friends see Jesus. That kind of brings up a, a good practical point this morning. Is there something that is standing in your way, for those of you who may not know Jesus Christ, from coming to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Don't let any obstacle especially pride, stop you from coming to Jesus Christ. Ask Him to save you from your sins. And as a believer, has anything frustrated you? Or maybe has stopped you from reading, studying your Bible, or ministry for God on a daily basis? That happens to us. That can happen to us sometimes. But this will encourage us. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, Now God knows what's going on in our lives. Hebrews 4, 15, 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Now, look what this commentator said. It says, Our great high priest not only is perfectly merciful and faithful, but also perfectly understanding. He has an unequal capacity for sympathizing with us in every danger, in every trial, in every situation that comes our way. Because he has been through it all himself. Isn't that great? So Christ, our merciful, sympathetic high priest, is ready to help you. If you had or currently have had the coronavirus, and maybe you're still in pain, come to Jesus. He will comfort you through the Word of God, and through others. Or maybe it's temptation you're dealing with. Maybe sorrow, rebellious, right? Remember rebellious children, persecution, financial problems, loss of a spouse, 
marital issues, the list goes on and on. Jesus is waiting for you with open arms. Come to Jesus with your anxieties. He is there to help you. Like these four men did, they went to Jesus. They didn't let anything stop them from getting their friend to Jesus. Now what they did, as we'll see in these verses, it was risky, but they tried something else to overcome their obstacle. Because of their faith in Jesus and their love for their friend, they came up with a different plan to reach Jesus. The end of Hebrews says, an extraordinary, ardent, persistent action of the four in getting the man to Jesus was visible evidence of their faith and his ability to heal. It proved the living nature of their faith. So they probably said, hey, if we can't go through the crowd, then we'll do what? We'll go up and then down, right? Now, someone called this new plan sanctified ingenuity. I like that. Sanctified ingenuity. We'll continue on in verse 4. It says, they removed the roof from above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet in which the paralytic was lying. So they climbed up the roof, approximately where Jesus was, X marks the spot, and he started to dig and tear out pieces and started to remove part of the roof. One commentator said the typical roof was constructed using large wooden beams with smaller pieces of wood in between, covered by a thatch consisting of grain, twigs, straw, and mud. Tiles would then be installed on top of the thatch. The foreman carried the front around the crowd of the stairs to the roof and began removing roof tiles, mud, and thatch. They were determined, right? They were determined to get their friend to see Jesus. They probably dug a large enough opening, something like a four by six rectangular hole, right? So the stretcher could fit through and, and lower their friend down. I was thinking about this, you know, from the paralytic's point of view, he must have really trusted his friends, right? I mean, if you think about that, he must have really trusted his friends to, to lower him down and not let the rope slip and, and drop him, right? Can you imagine? He must have really trusted. But that just shows you how desperate he was to see Jesus and have Jesus heal him. I mean, I think we would do the same thing, right? We put ourselves in, in their sandals, right? We would, if we were paralyzed, yes, we, would, we wouldn't care. We would want somebody to take us to Jesus. But imagine this. Being inside the house, Jesus was teaching, and the next thing you know, there was pounding above, right? There was a crack of light in the ceiling, which kept getting bigger and bigger until the stretcher could fit through and be lowered down. One commentator said Jesus was, no doubt, teaching in the large central room of the house when people pressed around him when debris started falling from the ceiling onto the heads below. He says one can easily imagine the shock and dismay. It's like if somebody right now just started cutting right through the panel right there and started, not about Jesus, but anyway, lowering, lowering the stretcher, stretcher down, right? And verse 6 continues. And it says there, but being unable to get him because of the crowd, he removed the roof about him. When he had dug an opening, let down a pound of which the paralytic was lying. Luke chapter 5, verse 19 adds, it says, His friends, this is horizontally let down the bed, and the paralytic was lowered to the ground right in front of Jesus. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the expression on a paralytic's face when he saw Jesus face to face? Full of joy, right? Full of joy. Joy in his heart. Kind of like when we get to heaven one day and we see Jesus face to face. Joy, unexpressible on our hearts, right? As Revelation chapter 22, verses 3 and 4 tells us. 
What was Jesus' reaction to all of this? Jesus became angry, right? He strongly rebuked the paralytic and his four friends for interrupting his teaching ministry, right? You're interrupting my ministry. What are you doing, right? Is that what he said? And like I say, ministry is interruption, right? Ministry is always, always has interruptions. But this leads us to the third observation showing that Jesus, the Son of God, has the authority to forgive sins. When Jesus provides a paralytic with his first greatest need. Jesus provides a paralytic with his first greatest need. Look at verse 5. And Jesus, seeing the face, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. What a phrase. Your sins are first part of that verse, where it says, Jesus seeing there, not just the paramedic, but there, all five men seeing their faith. In the Greek language, the word blepo means having the capability to see as opposed to being blind. But there's a different Greek word used here for see. The Greek word for seeing is horako, which means to look, to perceive, and in this case, to take special note of someone. To take special note of someone. So no matter what your dire situation is today, your Christian journey, always remember that Jesus takes special note of you, and he's with you as you go through the trials. Verse 5, it says that Jesus seen their faith. Faith here is not speaking about someone drumming up enough faith inside themselves, right? Like some of the faith, faith healers say, but having faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Faith says that you have absolute certainty and understanding that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, was buried, and that he rose again. And Jesus, seeing their faith, was not just speaking about the outward evidence of these five men, believing that Jesus could heal, but again, it was an inward, genuine, repentant, saving faith, which Jesus in his omniscience, which means he knows all things, saw in their heart, that recognizes and believes that Jesus can grant forgiveness of sins, which was a paralytic and the four of his four friends is greatest need, forgiveness of their sins. John Carp says, this man along with his friends must have believed that Jesus was the one who offered salvation to those who repent. The crippled man saw himself as a guilty sinner, spiritually disabled and in need of forgiveness. Like the penitent tax collector in Luke chapter 18, who cried out, God, what, be merciful to me, who the sinner. That's right. That's what these men like. Verse 5 continues and it says, After Jesus seeing the paralytic's genuine face, said, Son, your sins are forgiven. The account of Matthew says, Jesus says, Take courage, my son, your sins are forgiven. What a touching, what touching words from Jesus to say, My son, my son, means he was about to become a child of God. My son, your sins are forgiven. Again, what a wonderful, beautiful, compassionate phrase to hear this morning, right? Your sins are forgiven. We can say that, right? If we trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we can say that. My sins have been forgiven. Well, sin is any personal lack of conformity, conformity to moral character and desire of God. Sin means missing the mark. It's like you're shooting an arrow. Right? You keep missing the bullseye of God's holy and righteous standards for you. First John 5, 17 says, all unrighteousness is sin. One commentator said, sin is missing, missing or falling short of any goal, standard, or purpose. 
Sin in the Bible signifies a departure from God's holy, perfect standard of what is right in word or deed. So even though the crowd anticipated Jesus healing the paralytic, paralytic right there on the spot, notice that Jesus dealt with the man's most critical need first, and that is forgiveness of his sins. And that's so true. Forgiveness means to pardon, to release, to let go, to, to drive, to send away. Forgiveness is the, the legal act of God in removing the charges against the sinner because atonement was made by Jesus, sacrificial death on the cross, and as a result, the debt of sin had been erased. One commentator says, forgiveness is both mankind's greatest need and God's most important gift. And the only means for blessing in his life and eternal life in heaven. Jesus Christ came into the world to save his people from their sins, as we heard last week in the Christmas message. And through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Just as a word, with the word, Jesus stilled the storm. With the word, he dismissed the paralytic sins and gave him his most gracious gift to meet his greatest need, the forgiveness of sins. You know, Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 says, For he, God, rescued us. Thirty-one, thirty-four says, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. When you go to God and ask that forgiveness, he chooses not to remember your sins once he forgives you. Psalm 103, verse 12 says, as far as east is from the west, so far he has he removed our transgressions from us. Wow, when you think about the, the extensiveness of God's forgiveness of your sins and what he does now, some people said, and you probably heard this, Jesus loved you what? He loved you this much, right? And he died for you on the cross. He died for you on the cross. Well, as soon as Jesus said, Son, your sins are forgiven, the paralytic sins were forgiven immediately, he was declared righteous by God. The weight of sin and God's wrath, like a huge ton of bricks, were no longer upon this man. And again, maybe you're here this morning and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ. Has God said those words to you? Take courage. Your sins are forgiven. If you have a desire to have the weight of sin and God's wrath removed from you, I encourage you to place your trust and faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord said, really died on the cross, was buried, and he rose. In fact, Acts chapter 4, verse 12 
salvation, and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. But Christ doesn't forgive our sins, I mean, what a great example for us to follow when we think about forgiving sins. Pretty quickly, in his article, Forgiveness from the Heart, biblical counselor Robert, Robert Cagle says this about forgiveness. If we willingly practice forgiveness from the heart in the little things, including gently addressing matters with offenders, we will please God and grow more like Christ. In addition, God will strengthen our, he calls it, forgiveness muscle for greater potential tests. He says, we see that forgiveness always costs the forgiver. Like that phrase, forgiveness always costs the forgiver. Forgiving us costs Jesus his life. Likewise, in God's economy, unforgiveness always costs the unforgiver, as Matthew 6, 15 says. Let's all choose to forgive biblically. Right? And I think that's a great goal for you in 2021. Let's make sure we forgive quickly and often. Right? What was the reaction? What was the reaction of those who were watching what Jesus did? Well, this leads us to the fourth observation, Sean, that Jesus, the Son of God, has authority to forgive sins. Is when Jesus knows this man's deepest thoughts. Jesus knows this man's deepest thoughts. Let's look at verse 6. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. When Jesus said the word, your sins are forgiven, this became the catalyst that gave the hostile uh, scribes and uh, the Pharisees the perfect ammunition they needed to accuse Jesus. But just as Jesus knew the paralytic's deepest need, gave him, and a similar way Jesus saw deep inside the scribes and Pharisees' sinful hearts and revealed their thoughts to us. We see exactly what was happening in their heart. In fact, verse 7, let's look at the first question. It says, why does this man speak that way? They meant this question to be derogatory towards Jesus by calling him a mere man. But little did they know that by calling Jesus a man, they were actually verifying the fact that Jesus truly was 100% man. That he truly was a man. Then the scribes also accused Jesus of blasphemy. One commentator says blasphemy was the most heinous crime in Jewish thought since it was a direct affront to the person of God. They defined three levels of blasphemy. First, one blaspheming God by speaking evil of his law. A more serious form of blasphemy, but to slander, speak evil of, or curse God himself. But the ultimate form of blasphemy was to assume the rights and prerogatives of God to usurp the role of God and act as if one were God. It was this third and most severe type of blasphemy that the scribes and Pharisees accused Jesus of. Now, let's think how ironic, right, to accuse God of being God. You know, Jesus Christ is God. He is God Almighty, right? Well, another question, and then my was, who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, at least they got one thing, right? right? Who can't forgive sins but God alone? Jesus Christ is God, and he can forgive sins. God is the only one who can forgive sin on this earth. Well, these questions show that the scribes and the leaders were seriously engaged in sin of unbelief regarding Jesus Christ as being man, God, Lord, and Savior. We say that if they were stuck in their unbelief, not allowed to go to heaven, but they would go where? They would go to hell because of unbelief. Unbelief is probably the, the, the severest sin when you think about it. 
the severe sin that would send a person to hell. Well, verse 8 says, Neither Jesus nor Mary spirit that they were reasoning that were with themselves said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? But Jesus reacted by showing the, the hostile religious leaders that he truly was God. And how did he do that? Well, first, by Jesus being omniscient, knowing what their thoughts were. Again, God is the only one who can read a person's mind or their thoughts. And by the way, he knew also the thoughts, not just of the leaders, but also of everyone that was in the crowd. He knew exactly what every single person in that house was thinking. In fact, Jesus knows what you're thinking of this morning, right? I wish I was home at my warm house, right? <laughs> I wish it was a warm pulpit. Pastor Norman, can we get a warm pulpit? <laughs> but can you imagine? But can you imagine if, Jesus, if God let us know what people were thinking about us? Or even worse, if God revealed to others what we were thinking about them, right? We'd be careful there. That's what we want to take every part captive to the obedience of, of Christ. God knows everything. He knows every single one of our thoughts. Well, Jesus didn't need these leaders to express verbally what their thoughts were. He read their heart and their mind. In fact, John chapter 25 says, For he himself knew what was in man. But it's interesting, and also even though they accused Jesus of blasphemy, Jesus didn't debate it, but claimed that he was equal to God and that God is the only one who could forgive sins which he did already, right? But here's an interesting thought. Uh, as Jesus was revealing their thoughts, notice that not one of not one of the religious leaders denied what Jesus said that they were thinking. He was right on in what they were thinking in their hearts. I mean, their jaws must have dropped, right? He must have said, "How do you know that? How do you know?" That? Like our our adult kids there, our teenagers say, "Mom and Dad, how do you know that?" Right? No, we don't use these things to say that to us, right? But what Jesus did is he went straight to their heart. He dealt with them with their heart. He didn't deal with the symptoms. He dealt with them right to their heart. But only did Jesus have the authority to give somebody he is concerned about a personal, person's physical need also. Which leads us to the fifth observation showing that Jesus, Son of God, had authority to forgive sins when Jesus provided a paralytic with the second greatest need. Jesus provided a paralytic with his second greatest need. Look at verse 9. Jesus says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk. Well, we see Jesus was questioning the paralytic to say, which one is easier? And actually, we know it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because no one can see any outward, right? Proof to verify that one's sins were actually forgiven. But here in verses 10 to 11, Jesus said, but so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Pick up your college and go. So we see what the paralytic did, right? We saw that the paralytic is about to obey Jesus. We see that he truly has saving faith. So what did the former paralytic do? This brings us to sixth and last observation. So that Jesus, the Son of God, has authority to forgive sin. So Jesus, when Jesus' miracle amazes the crowd, verse 12, it says that he got up and immediately picked up a pallet went out in sight of everyone. The paralytic obeyed Jesus. Jesus gave him three commands. He obeyed, which shows true saving faith, right? Because he obeyed what Jesus had to say. But look at the reaction from the crowd. It says they were all amazed, and it said we have never seen anything like this. In fact, Luke chapter 5, verse 26 says that the crowd was filled with fear, saying we have seen remarkable things 
today. But right then and there, the crowd, they should have all dropped their knees and worshipped Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But unfortunately, nothing is said about the crowd coming to save faith. The onlookers saw Jesus as just a man who God gave the authority to perform miracles. They had missed the boat, just like the leaders did also. The point for us this morning is if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, please don't miss the boat like the religious leaders did, or like the crowd did. Come to Jesus Christ. Believe again that he died on the cross for your sins, he was buried, and he rose again. The sixth observation shows that Jesus, the Son of God, has the authority to forgive sins. First, Jesus enters the city of Capernaum. Jesus meets four determined men. Jesus provides a parable for his first greatest need. Jesus knows man's deepest thought. Jesus provides the parable for his second greatest need. And Jesus' miracle amazes the crowd of people. So during this Christmas season of, of giving gifts, Jesus Christ is the greatest gift anyone could ever receive because he has authority to forgive sins, which is what every sinner needs. Amen? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for our time this morning. And thank you, Father, for the truth that Jesus Christ truly is God and He truly can forgive sin. We can pray for those, again, Father, who are with us or watch our life. If you do not know Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior today, the day of their salvation, they will go to Jesus and ask Him to forgive them of their sins. So we love you, Father. We thank you again for all that you do for us. Thank you again for the miracle that you gave to us salvation by sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. We love you and thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.